0: In the middle of the first century A.D., the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Outside of what Christ did for us, I cannot think of a better example of this verse being lived out on a daily basis than the men and women who use their freedom as an opportunity to serve others by volunteering for military service. Going places most of us would never go, doing things most of us would never do, often at the risk and expense of their own lives so that the rest of us can continue to enjoy the life and freedoms that are available to us in this great country of ours. So today, we honor the men and women who have given of their freedom in order to defend ours, to protect our homes and our families and our way of life from those who would seek to destroy everything that we hold dear. If you are a veteran, we love you and we thank you for your service today. Would you stand if you're a veteran? Can we please give them a hand, everybody? This picture of what the soldier does for us, providing what we cannot necessarily provide for ourselves, going where we cannot go for ourselves, and doing what we cannot do for ourselves is really a powerful analogy of what Jesus Christ has provided for us, where he has gone for us, and what he's done for us. So, I think it is fitting that we arrive today at the seventh chapter of Hebrews as we continue our sermon series, working our way through that letter. Because throughout the letter so far, the author has been comparing Jesus to everything these first century Hebrew people held in the highest regard. And so, in chapters one and two, he compares Jesus to the angels. In chapter 3, he compares Jesus to Moses. In chapter 4, he compares the rest that Jesus provides for God's people to the rest that Joshua provided for God's people. In chapter 5, he compares Jesus as the high priest to Aaron, the high priest in the time of Moses. And all along the way, he hints at the comparison between Jesus and this mysterious yet highly regarded ancient priest and king, Melchizedek, including in chapter 6, which we looked at last week. And so today, we find out why he makes all of these comparisons and why it matters as it all comes to a culmination in this seventh chapter where the author not only puts an exclamation point on Jesus being greater than all of these other highly honored people and institutions among the Jews, but he also explains why it has to be Jesus that we ultimately give our lives to above and beyond everyone and everything else that we hold dear in this life. Because only Jesus can provide what we cannot provide for ourselves. Only Jesus can go where we cannot go for ourselves. And only Jesus can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, the angels cannot even in the least provide for people what they need the most. Moses couldn't provide it. Aaron couldn't provide it. Joshua couldn't provide it. Melchizedek couldn't provide it. The law couldn't provide it. Listen, your job can't provide it. Your spouse can't provide it. Your family can't provide it. Your your friends can't provide it. Your income can't. Can't provide it. Your, your church can't provide it. Your religion can't provide it. You see, nothing in this world, not even in the least, can provide for you what you need the most because the greatest need of every single human soul is to be in a covenant relationship with the God who created them. And no matter how far you look or how hard you try to fulfill that need in any other person or any other place or any other thing, there is still only one place you will ever truly find what you need more than anything else. And that is only In Jesus Christ and of course as Christians we tell people that right we tell them that Jesus is the answer to our every need we tell them that Jesus is our supply that Jesus is the only way to the life we were created for but honestly I wonder when people look at us and how we live our lives is that what they actually see is that how we actually live Are we living differently than everyone else or do our lives look the same as everyone else? Because look, being a Christian isn't just about believing in something new. It's about becoming something new. You see, the call of Christ isn't just a call to a new way of thinking. It's a call to a new way of living. And I'm wondering, is that what people see when they see us? Or do we simply blend in with the rest of society who doesn't believe in Jesus? And maybe, maybe that's why more people in our culture aren't interested in following Christ today. Maybe that's why unbelievers aren't flocking to the church every single day like they did in Acts 2.47, because we aren't living like the believers did in Acts 2.42 through 46. Read it sometime. And maybe when they look at us they see no discernible difference between our lives and everyone else's. Because the truth is, when you live your life in such a way that the only explanation for why you do the things you do, the only reason you say the things that you say, the only justification for going the places you go, the only argument that can be made for why you give the way that you give, when your life is lived in such a manner that there can be no other explanation for how you're living but Jesus, then the truth about Him can no longer be ignored. You see, it's easy for unbelievers to dismiss the Christian faith when those who say they follow it live their lives just like everyone else does. Right? Why bother with Jesus if nothing in your life actually changes? But when your life is remarkably different than everyone else's, when people cannot ignore the way that you live and give and speak and act because it is so radically different than how the rest of the world lives and gives and speaks and acts, then people want to know why. Trust me, they want to know why you do the things that you do and say the things that you say. And when you tell them, it is only because of Jesus it actually means something to them because of the observable evidence of his life in yours and I, I think most professing Christians would agree with all of that conceptually I'm just not sure we've accepted it practically and how we go about living our daily lives because honestly I'm not sure we fully believe it ourselves I think deep down If we're completely honest with ourselves, I think we wonder sometimes if Jesus truly is all that we need. So we pad our lives with lots of other things to maybe help Jesus out when it comes to our needs being met. I think we struggle at times in trusting him with every aspect of our lives, so we try to help him out by taking matters into our own hands, just to be sure. I think at times... We're fearful of what might happen to us if we really let him have everything. So we hold on to a lot more than we should to ensure we don't come up empty. You see, we we say that Jesus is enough, but do we really believe it? Does your life look so radically different than everyone else's in our culture who doesn't believe it that the truth about him and you cannot be ignored? And if not, then why not? This is what the author of Hebrews was confronting in his letter to these first century Jews who were professing faith in Christ and yet they had come to rely so heavily on the teachings of the patriarchs, the the great men of old. They'd come to rely so heavily on the old covenant law, a religious system where they thought they could earn their way to God that they were struggling with the idea that Jesus was actually enough for them. And so they were, they were holding on to their old ways in one hand while reaching out to Jesus with the other. And the author says to them, you can't do that. You, you can't have it both ways. You see, if you're going to follow Jesus, then it's only Jesus from here on out. You can't have one foot anchored in your past while the other foot is trying to follow him. You'll never get anywhere that way. See, it's, it's only Jesus or not Jesus at all which is a challenge that the church needs to confront today just as much as it did then if our lives are going to be truly different from those who do not believe. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week at Hebrews chapter 7 as the author makes his case that only Jesus is truly worth following. And just a quick note about the structure of this chapter because it's a little different than what we're used to. The first 10 verses, the author lays out the qualifications of Melchizedek as a high priest. And we'll go over that as we read through it. The next 11 verses, he lays out the even greater qualifications of Jesus as the great high priest. And then in the final seven verses, the author makes his case for why all of that should have a radical impact on our lives how that should actually change the way that we live. So we'll go over the first two sections. I'll do that as quickly as I can, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time on those last seven verses. So let's begin by reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. So the King of Righteousness is the little translation of his name, and Salem meant peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So first of all, uh, there are a few characters in all of biblical scripture about whom there's so much mystery as there is surrounding Melchizedek, who the author has mentioned at several points along the way in this letter leading up to this chapter. However, there are four most common, uh, fairly common theories about him that sort of rise to the top of the heap, at least in popularity, Uh, if not in veracity or fidelity to the actual biblical text. And so we'll briefly take a look at each one before we get to the true significance of this character in our letter today. Okay, First of all, Melchizedek's story begins in uh, Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, where Abraham is pursuing a group of invading kings who took, among other things, Abraham's own nephew, Lot. And so Abraham pursues these enemy kings to the city of Dan where he stages a nighttime attack and he completely routs the enemy. And in describing that story, the author of Hebrews reminds his readers who, by the way, were already intimately familiar with that story. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But the author reminds these Jewish believers that Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So Melchizedek comes from Salem, he meets Abraham in the Kidron Valley or the King's Valley as he's described in, uh, in Genesis near the Gihon Spring, and he blesses Abraham, which would of course be appropriate for a priest to do. And then the author goes on to describe him as first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's the literal translation of his name. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the description of Melchizedek which has caused no small amount of uh, conjecture and debate over the true identity of this old world priest and king. So first of all, uh, in Hebrew tradition, Melchizedek is believed to be Shem, one of the sons of Noah, who was still alive uh, in the days of Abraham, by the way. As far as we know, he was the oldest man living at the time. However, it couldn't have been Shem because the author of Hebrews clearly states that Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy. And of course, we have, uh, we have Shem's family lineage in Scripture, so that theory doesn't hold water. Secondly, there are those who say he was a theophany a visible manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, that he was Jesus, appearing as a man because of the comment, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. However, the idea of Melchizedek being Jesus in disguise is really untenable, indefensible scripturally, because first of all, the rest of that verse says, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, he, he wouldn't have been described as resembling the Son of God in ancient literature if he was the Son of God, even uh, more to the point. Jesus is later described in verse 15 as being a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. In other words, he's a priest like Melchizedek was, clearly being compared to Melchizedek as a different person. And probably most compelling against the idea of Melchizedek and Jesus being the same person is verse 19, which describes Jesus as a better hope through which we draw near to God, which would be the author saying that Jesus is a better hope than Jesus if Melchizedek and Jesus were the same person. So it seems these were two different people. Uh, The third popular theory about Melchizedek that was originally held by the Gnostics in the early uh, centuries AD is the idea that he was some type of celestial or angelic being. And yet in verse 4, he's clearly described as a man. Which leaves us really with only one other option, which is to simply read the text for what it actually says about Melchizedek and then take it at face value, that he was one of the Canaanite kings of old, a man who not only ruled over Salem, which is the ancient name for Jerusalem, by the way, before it belonged to the Hebrews, but who also acted as a priest to the Most High God, which is actually not at all out of the realm of possibility as we see many others from non-israelite races all throughout old testament scripture who were faithful to the god of the israelites and rejected the worship of pagan idols and as far as melchizedek being described as being without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days or end of life Uh, that's not suggesting that he was some kind of uh, biological anomaly or some type of divine being. It's it's actually just another way uh, in ancient literature to say he comes without a genealogy in the written record that we have. And so in that way, he's without father or mother and has no beginning or ending of days because we don't have any record of his family lineage or birth or death. And when it says he continues a priest forever, if you read that phrase in the ancient Greek, in the original Greek, it's a different phrase than the one used to describe Jesus as a priest forever in verse 17, and again, where Jesus is described as holding his priesthood permanently in verse 24. In other words, if you read that in the original language, the author is describing Melchizedek as a priest without interruption during his priesthood on the earth, whereas Jesus, he says, serves as a priest for all of eternity. Okay? And in just case you're wondering, the reason the author doesn't go on to explain all of that here is because the people he was writing this to already knew all of that. Because this letter to the Hebrews wasn't only written to Jewish believers, it was written to a particular sect of Jewish believers called the Essenes. Right? The Essenes were the Jews who recorded the Qumran scrolls, what we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, who also happened to be well-known They were famous for their extensive knowledge of and extremely high regard at the time for the person of Melchizedek. In fact, in their writings, he was given a a very high order in the heavenly hierarchy. Melchizedek happens to be one of the most renowned and central characters in the Essenes' writings and traditions. They were known for being the experts at the time on Melchizedek as well. He was the subject of many other ancient Jewish writings writings from first century historians like Flavius Josephus and Philo of Alexandria the point being the author of Hebrews knew his audience he knew how highly they regarded Melchizedek, which is not only why he felt no compulsion to have to explain every detail about Melchizedek's life and identity, but it also leads us to the real reason he goes to all of this trouble to compare Jesus to Melchizedek to begin with. Because although these Hebrews were interested in following Jesus... They were having significant trouble reconciling the idea intellectually of Jesus as the true high priest because of their Jewish upbringing, which stressed that the high priest had to come from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, the the family of Aaron. And yet everyone knew that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so in order to resolve the intellectual conflict that these Hebrew Christians were having over the fact that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, the author brings one of their greatest heroes, Melchizedek, front and center to his argument. Why? Because these Essene Hebrews, first of all, wouldn't dare invalidate the priesthood of their beloved Melchizedek. And yet, as the author goes to great pains to point out to them, Melchizedek wasn't from the tribe of Levi either. It's absolutely brilliant. The way the author uses their own writings to refute their own arguments against Jesus being the true high priest. You see, it's also why he goes on to point out that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood in verses 9 and 10. Because he's about to show us that as superior as Melchizedek was to the Levites, Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. So I know that's a bit of a lengthy explanation for why these first 10 verses are spent talking about Melchizedek, but listen, it's important for you to understand it because the author now uses this impressive description of this Melchizedek that he knows his audience will completely agree with. He uses that to show that only Jesus can be an even better high priest than Melchizedek. So let's keep reading verses 11 through 21. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What he's talking about there is uh, when they went from the priesthood of Melchizedek To the priesthood of Aaron. Of course, we were given the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant Law, and then when we went from the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Christ, we went from the old covenant law to the new covenant law. That's why he says, For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. "...for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life." For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110.4. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So after going to great lengths to build up the priesthood of Melchizedek, the author goes on to show us an even better priesthood through Jesus Christ, who has become a priest, he says, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, we can talk all day long about what genealogies exist and don't exist. But at the end of the day, Jesus did not become the high priest because of his tribal descent or his bodily descent. No, Jesus is the high priest because of something infinitely greater than the old legal requirements under the old covenant. You see, Jesus's qualifications as high priest begin with the fact that the power of his life overcame death itself. There's no Levitical priest, no ancient priest from Melchizedek to Aaron to his offspring. There is no one who can claim an indestructible life but Jesus Christ alone. And then he says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And the word perfect there in the ancient Greek is the word teleao, which literally means to complete or to accomplish. In other words, it's not referring to something perfect in the sense that it has no flaws. It's not referring to something uh, that is, well, we normally think of as perfection. It's actually referring to something that has arrived at its desired end, something that has reached its goal. So, in other words, the law was not able to arrive at its desired end, or to reach its goal, which will factor in very profoundly at the end of the chapter. So just keep that in mind. And then he says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In other words, as good as Melchizedek was, he wasn't good enough to reconcile our relationship to God. As good as the old law was, It wasn't good enough to reconcile our relationship to God. So along came Jesus Christ, a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, only Jesus is qualified to be our high priest because only Jesus can draw us near to God. Only Jesus can give us unmitigated access to the throne of God because of what he did, not because of what we do or what any of the priests before him have done. And then he continues, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is the father, the Lord has sworn and I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever. Meaning under the old covenant, The priests were made priests because of a legal requirement, but under the new covenant, Jesus is made a priest by the oath of God himself, which is the claim that only Jesus can make. Not Melchizedek, not Aaron, not the Levites, only Jesus Christ. And so all of this, the first two thirds of the chapter, is really there simply as a foundation For the real message, which is in the last seven verses of the chapter where we'll spend the rest of our time today. But make no mistake, without that foundation, these Essene Hebrews, and I would say even Christians today, would not be able to fully understand the profound impact that these final seven verses should have in our daily lives. So let's keep reading verses 22 through 24. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So the author says, look, you guys are hung up on Jesus not being from the tribe of Levi and yet you're good with having no genealogy whatsoever on your beloved Melchizedek while completely overlooking the fact that out of all of them, only Jesus overcame death. Only Jesus can bring you to God. And only Jesus was made priest by the oath of God to begin with, which makes only Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, do you understand what that means? It means only Jesus is qualified to offer you a new life. So why are you still hung up on the old one? Why are you still trying to trust in your old life? It is, is it because you don't fully trust Jesus to lead you into a new life? You, you say you do. You say you trust Jesus. You, you say you depend on him. You say he's everything to you. But then why does your life look like everyone else who doesn't believe? See, why are you still trusting in the same things they put their trust in? Those who trust in themselves, those who trust in what this world can provide for them, those who trust in their old ways of living. Why doesn't your life look more like Jesus' life and his apostles' lives and those early followers' lives, men and women who gave up everything just to follow him, people who risked everything to pursue his calling on their lives, people who held nothing back when it came to serving him and his people you see they understood that no one else could offer them what Jesus was offering them so they abandoned every other pursuit in their lives for a new life for a better life by following Jesus with everything they had yet these second generation Hebrew Christians weren't convinced and I don't think a lot of Christians today are convinced either And I say that because if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to better their lives, and of course we all want uh, to better our lives one way or the other, right? Everyone does. Believers, unbelievers, doesn't matter. Everyone wants to better their lives, to move forward, to progress in one way or another because that's the way God hardwired us. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to do that, to live a better life tomorrow than the one they lived yesterday, by and large, we are pursuing all of the exact same things that non-Christians are pursuing to try and make that happen. So our lives end up looking exactly like theirs do. This is just what was happening. With the Hebrew believers in this letter, they believed in Jesus, but they also believed they had to continue pursuing what their Jewish culture was telling them they would need for a better life. It was a sort of a sort of a first century Jewish brand of Christianity where they wanted a new life while still holding on to their old life. They believed in Jesus while still following the ways of their culture. And I'm telling you, I can't think of a better description of the American brand of Christianity that many people follow today. We believe in Jesus while continuing to follow the ways of this world. Why do we do that? Because we don't truly believe that Jesus is enough. We say we do. But in many cases, our lives don't prove that out. And listen, by the way, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, having nice things. Okay, I have nice things. Most of us have nice things. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. What is wrong is when we believe that pursuing those things is what will lead us to a life that we're all longing for. Because we don't believe that Jesus alone is enough to get us there. So we put our trust in the systems of this world, just like everyone else does. We look to political systems and financial systems and power systems and religious systems to make our old lives better. But look, Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life which is the only life that will ever truly satisfy the longing that God put inside of you while he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. The inherent need inside all of us for God can only be satisfied by God, and yet the very thing we need the most to experience that new life is often the very thing we pursue the least. We treat our relationship with Jesus as something to believe in, but not something to actually live for. So we believe in him and we live for ourselves. We reach out to him for a new life with one hand while holding on to our old life with the other because we don't really believe that he will be enough if we let go of this world and hold fast to Christ alone. That's why the author says later in this letter, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23. In other words, you can let go of this world. It's okay. You can let go of this world and hold on to the promise of a new life in Christ with both hands because Jesus is enough to get you there. In fact, it is only Jesus who can get you there. But that means letting go of this world, which is why he continues in verse 25. Let's read it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, not only is Jesus the only one who can offer you a new life, but only Jesus can rescue you from your old life. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, okay? Every single thing that we have ever needed saving from and every single thing that we ever will need saving from, Jesus and only Jesus is able to save us from. The Hebrew Christians were still looking back at their old lives for salvation. But listen, the angels couldn't save them. Moses couldn't save them. Aaron couldn't save them. Joshua couldn't save them. Melchizedek couldn't save them. The Levites couldn't save them. The law couldn't save them. No, only Jesus Christ could save them. But there was a stipulation, you see, to that salvation. A condition that had to be met first. Because Jesus says, yeah, he's able to save to the uttermost. But who is he talking about? Who are the ones who he is able to save to the uttermost? Well, he tells us those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus Christ. You see, if you need to be rescued from your old life, If you want freedom from your old way of living, only Jesus can provide that for you. But you have to draw near to God through him first because he won't force you to follow him. Just to be clear, you can't get there any other way. Being good, being religious, being sincere being passionate, being compassionate. Those are all good things. But none of those things will rescue you from your old life. You have to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Only Jesus can rescue you from your old life. But listen, he cannot lead you where you refuse to go. It's up to you to draw near to him, to, to follow him. And I'll just tell you, when finally you make that decision, not just to believe in Jesus, but to actually follow Jesus wherever he leads you, then you better buckle up because you're in for the ride of your life. The call of Christ is a radical call to a whole new life where you leave the old life in the dust and pursue something completely new. You see, when it comes to drawing near to Christ, when it comes to following him, Do you know that Jesus never called anyone to a life of moderation? As we get older, we tend to become more balanced in some areas of life. At least we should. And we learn moderation. How to balance work and play and relationships and so on. It's all a part of maturing and gaining life experience. And of course, some do that better than others. But listen, when it comes to following Jesus Christ, do you know there's actually no room for moderation? There is no balance. There's no part of our lives where we need a little less of Jesus so we can fit something else in. And it's not that we replace all of our relationships with Jesus or replace work with Jesus or stop uh, having recreation for the sake of Christ. No, it's that he is supposed to permeate all of that all of the time. Everywhere we go, as he becomes the very center of all that we are, and all that we have, and all that we do. So that everything, everything for the Christian is supposed to be about Jesus Christ, no exceptions. So what does that mean? Well, it means forget balance when it comes to living for Christ. Forget moderation. Go ahead and swing the pendulum all the way to Jesus and let him rule over and dwell in every single area of your life. Right? If you've ever experienced a moment in your life when you had to either uh, be all in with something or all out of something, then you know what it's like to have to make those kinds of decisions. Generally speaking, most things in life allow for a certain degree of moderation. But listen, following Jesus Christ isn't one of them. The stark reality is following him is an all or nothing proposition and it's also the only pathway to rescue It's the only way you will ever truly overcome your former way of living when you let him rescue you by doing something so radical in your life that you could never be the same again, which is something that only Jesus can do. Which brings us to the final point of the author's message in this part of the letter. So let's read it together. Verse 26 to the end of the chapter. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, This is where that word perfect, teleao in the Greek, uh, becomes really important to the author's message because remember it literally means to complete. Or to accomplish. In other words, when the author says that Jesus and the work that he does is perfect, he's not saying, at least in this passage, that Jesus and his work is without flaws. Now, we know, of course, that Jesus and his work is without flaws because that is clear in many other passages in scripture. But here, when the author says that Jesus and his work is made perfect, he's saying that it is a completed work, never to be repeated again. He says, Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, like all the other guys we've been talking about. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this when once for all. One time when he offered up himself. In other words, when Jesus did what he did for us on the cross, it was and always will be a one-time body of work that never needs repeating. Why? It's because of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Unlike Melchizedek and all the others, Jesus is holy. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is unstained. Jesus is separated from sinners. Jesus is exalted above the heavens. He is holy and completely unlike all of the others, which means his work is whole and complete unlike all of the others, which means only Jesus can make us whole and complete. Something none of the others could accomplish their work had to be repeated over and over and over again never truly making anyone permanently whole as we were created to be from the beginning and so Jesus came to do what no one else could do which means only Jesus can make your life whole so that now everything that happens in our lives in Christ Is a complete work. And the reason this was so important for these Hebrew Christians to hear is because nothing that the Old Testament patriarchs or prophets or priests ever did for them was a complete work. What the angels did for them was temporary. You see, what Melchizedek did for them was temporary. What Moses did for them was temporary. What Aaron did for them was temporary. What the Levites did for them was temporary. And what the law did for them was temporary. So it had to be repeated over and over and over again. And so the author is trying to get across to them that in Christ, they never have to go back to the old system. They never have to go back to their old way of living. They never have to go back to the old way of trying to overcome their own brokenness. They never have to go back to their old way of searching for wholeness in their lives because of what Jesus did for them. He can now make their lives whole once and for all. And listen, the reason that is so important for us to hear today is because some of you, I'm talking about Christians, have been carrying around hurt and brokenness for so long in your life that you don't know any other way to the point that you just assume it must be your burden to bear as long as you walk this earth. So you keep going back to the temporary fixes that help you for a little while but ultimately fail to bring your life into true wholeness because none of those temporary things can do for you what only Jesus can. And so look, every time you run to something or someone else to ease the pain of your brokenness, when you're, what you're saying is in those moments, when you look to other things to temporarily make you feel better, what you're saying is, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus is someone to believe in, but I don't trust him to heal my brokenness. Jesus can save me for the next life, but he cannot heal my brokenness in this life. Jesus can save my soul, but he cannot heal my hurt. Do you realize how absurd that way of thinking is? Listen to me. Jesus came to make you whole. And he's the only one who can. So why would you ever trust anything else to do partially for you what only Jesus can do completely for you? Is it because you don't truly believe that Jesus is enough? King David, a man well acquainted with brokenness, once wrote, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34, 18 and 19. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that Jesus is enough to heal your brokenness? The great evangelist David Wilkerson once said, what is it about tears that should be so terrifying? The touch of God is marked by tears, deep soul shaking, tears, weeping. It comes when that last barrier is down. And you surrender yourself to health and wholeness. You see, nothing in this world, not even in the least, can ever provide for you what you need the most. Only Jesus can. You see, being a Christian, it isn't just about believing in something new. It's about becoming something new something only Jesus can offer you something only Jesus can rescue you for and something only Jesus can actually accomplish once for all so I think at the end of the day what it really boils down to is whether or not you truly believe that Jesus is enough and we say that he's enough but do we really believe it Because if you do, your life will look radically different than everyone else's in our culture who doesn't believe because of the radical dependency on him that will be undeniably evident in your life, in what you say, in what you do, in how you conduct your life every single day. In fact, it is such a radical dependency that when people ask you, and trust me, they will, Why is your life so different from everyone else's? You will have no choice but to tell them the truth. It is only because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.